Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Death is universal. It is one of the few constants throughout human history. For a long time, death has been understood as a cessation of cardiopulmonary function. With the advent of mechanical ventilation and life support in the ICU, the concept of brain death has emerged. Today, we understand brain death as death of the individual due to irreversible loss of function to the entire brain. The determination of brain death is still fraught with misunderstanding, both from clinicians and from the lay public. Today, we will discuss the neurologic criteria for determining death in adults. We will talk about brain death or death by neurologic criteria. Our guest is Dr. Fred Rincon, a repeat guest for the podcast. Dr. Rincon is Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery in the Division of Neurotrauma and Critical Care at the Department of Neurological Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He is board certified in internal medicine and critical care, neurology, vascular neurology, and neurocritical care. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, the American College of Chest Physicians, and the American Heart Association, and a member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Society of Neurocritical Care, and the American Academy of Neurology. Fred, welcome back to Critical Matters. It's my pleasure, Sergio. Thank you for having me here. So last time you were here a little bit over a year ago, we talked about neuroprognostication in patients who underwent it targeted therapeutic uh, hypothermia after cardiac arrest. Today, I think we're going to talk about a situation that might arise in this patient, but it's much more common in other situations, which is brain death or death by neurologic criteria. So I think that a good place to start would be to maybe provide us a little bit of a historical perspective. As I mentioned in the intro, we have traditionally understood death as being the cessation of cardiopulmonary um, function. But really, in in the 20th century, with the emergence of critical care and life support, this concept of brain death emerges. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this? When did this happen, Fred? So traditionally, we were uh, used to uh, the concept of death on the basis of uh, cardiopulmonary failure. And that sort of like, um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when you look at this uh, uh, philosophically and, uh, and medically, you know, you start reading all this. Um, reports and textbooks, you know, sort of like the cessation of pulse and 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 cardiac function and respirations, right? Was the um, sort of like uh, indicator of, of of death and the uh, the coming of death, and that's how we define it uh, classically. But around um, 1960, uh, physicians throughout the world, including the United States, uh, uh, by the way, the first ones that described this this concept were uh, the French. Uh, they the, the, they started looking at these patients that had catastrophic brain injury, and they ended up on mechanical ventilation, um, you know, for a while. So it, it sort of like became a phenomenon around 1968 when the first reports started to uh, you know come in the literature. And then you know if, if you look at the first reports in in, in France, uh, they uh, describe this as coma uh, de passé, you know, or uh, you know past coma, something like that. So um, there were all these patients with uh, um, brain injury that didn't have any uh, brain activity, uh, no brainstem reflexes, no consciousness. They were pretty much in a coma attached to mechanical ventilation and artificial life support. So they start questioning, um, you know, what are we going to do with these patients? You know, they're just like, you know, uh, filling our, our wards and our rooms. 
And that's when the uh, first uh, sort of like concepts start to emerge about uh, death uh, by neurological criteria. And then they start doing all these electrophysiological uh, studies that showed um, specific pattern that we see when we request uh, continuous EEGs in these patients. This is this electro, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, physiological silence, you know, sort of like the description of it. Um, and um, then they start sort of like questioning, you know, if they could use or develop a uh, concept of death on the basis of cessation of whole brain function. And that's what led to Harvard investigators uh, to start gathering information about uh, the natural course of this con condition. And on the basis of that, the United States uh, um, uh, started to look in, in more detail and assemble a, a group of, uh, of experts and investigators and you know, try to look at this more in detail and to provide more uh, definitions about um, you know what needed to be done in order to arrive to a conclusion of death on the neurological criteria, and that's what you see um, in, in the 1970s. Um, so like the first guideline in the United States uh, by the Harvard Group, and then finally the UDDA or the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which was commissioned by the president in in the late 70s, and then in 1981, uh, you know what defined death in the United States jurisdiction uh, on the basis of both cardiac and neurological criteria. So, you know, basically what the UDDA uh, says is that um, the expertise and the way that you arrive to this uh, definition of death and the neurological criteria is on the provider, on the physician side. It didn't tell how to do it or, you know, or, uh, or the specific uh, criteria that needed to be considered. It just said, you know, um, that it needed to be done by the providers themselves. And, and we arrived to a, 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 a definition, a sort of like a uh, determination um, of what needed to be done to arrive to that conclusion. It was basically a very simple thing, you know, uh, had catastrophic brain injury, um, uh, you know, followed by uh, a comatose state and absence of brainstem reflexes. And then we sort of like uh, define more how to approach that DC state over the following uh, 20 years. And that's sort of like the historic uh, uh, snapshot, right, of how we arrived to this conclusion and, and to this syndrome that we see uh, nowadays after catastrophic brain injury in the intensive care unit. And I think it's important because this is obviously not a old history, but um, considering, I mean, relatively new with the advent of, of the development of ICUs. But like you said, just to recap, the first guidelines really came in the United States from the group in Harvard in 1968 and legislation at a federal level with the Uniform Determination of Death Act in 1991 established that you could be pronounced dead either by cardiopulmonary criteria or by neurologic criteria. But what the legislation stated, like you said, Fred, was that that was based on a medical standard. So they really left the court or the legislators left the medical standard to be determined by clinicians and by, by societies. So I think that, um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's some classical or, 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 or uh, um, simple elements that have to be part of that initial determination. Why don't we dive a little bit more into the determination of brain death? And uh, as you mentioned, you talked about the clinical evaluation uh, of coma and some prerequisites, the absence of brainstem reflexes. 
and then apnea testing and tell us how from the guidelines that were published in 1995 forward how do we really think of at the bedside what should be the first step that we should uh, steps that we should take as intensivists or neurointensivists in uh, determining if a patient is brain dead uh, yes okay so uh, th that's very important I think what you mentioned about how uh, the, the attorneys or the judges sort of like uh, left this to uh, the providers right how we were going to define this this syndrome um, it, it's extremely important because you know for, for, for future discussions and and, and it's, it's very important for me to, to say this up front is that you know we arrived at these conclusions on the basis of expertise not on the basis of empiric data so we we basically uh, determine uh, certain things which I will mention, you know, what are the uh, prerequisites uh, for the clinical evaluation? Uh, you know, what are the sort of like guidelines in, in the United States? And by the way, when I say guidelines in this jurisdiction, that's an extremely important thing because the American Academy of Neurology has uh, this criteria and that's uh, the criteria that we use at the point of care at the bedside. Uh, it's different, like if you cross borders, it's different in Europe, it's different in, in, in Asia, and it's uh, very different, for example, in Latin America. But most of these jurisdictions sort of like adopt the same things um, that we uh, interpret here in the United States, sort of, sort of like the American Academy of Neurology. So um, you come to a um, question about is this patient brain dead when you have somebody with catastrophic brain injury? So like the, the, um, the most important thing is that you identify that there is a massive injury to the brain that would not be compatible with life otherwise. And then you start examining the patient. And um, the first thing that you have to document is uh, absence of consciousness. So is the patient comatose or not? And if the patient is in a coma, then you continue to build your case by examining the patient. And what you do when you're examining the patient is, um, by the way, examining primarily uh, the brainstem, because there's no way of documenting, um, you know, you know, is the patient thinking, you know, unless you fight or, or, or is the patient experiencing sensations, unless you are an, a seasoned, um, you know, examiner, neurologist that can pick up, for example, pitfalls, you know, like, for example, a patient with a um, locked-in syndrome, how to communicate with a patient that looks comatose that is not in reality comatose. But that's part of another discussion. So the second thing is to document total absence of brainstem reflexes, and you have to do a thorough uh, neurological exam um, at this level. So you start with the pupils, you start with the um, reaction to a corneal stimulation, uh, you look at the absence of movements of the eyes with stimulation by either movement uh, of the head if the patient doesn't have a neck injury or by a stimulation with uh, uh, caloric testing of the um, uh, vestibular center. So sort of what we call cold calorics. And then you continue, um, you know, going down uh, the different levels of the brainstem, then you check for the gag and the cough. And then finally, you have to test the lower segments of the medulla so you make sure that there is no um, a movements of the neck or um, or abnormal uh, posturing when you stimulate different levels. And, it, and this is an important um, aspect of the neurological exam is that you have to examine the patient above and below the foramen magnum. So this is, a, this is a concept that sometimes doesn't get translated very well, is what is the reaction with a painful stimulation on a finger or a toe or 
you know, or a segment lower than the foramen magnum. And what happens when I examine the patient above the foramen magnum? Because you have to see uh, absence of total uh, responses with both. So what happens when I stimulate uh, the V1 to V3 painful uh, areas, right? Um, you know, it has to be total absence. Then once you document that there's really no response to um, your, uh, during your physical exam, and you document there is total absence of brainstem reflexes, then you try to confirm that there's really no response to uh, stimulation whatsoever. And you do this with a apnea test, which is a CO2 challenge uh, at the bedside. So, uh, so Fred, before we yeah. go to the apnea test, I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. I think I want to dive in a little bit further into this first step, which I think is very important. And it may be a, not as a problematic for our neurology and neurocritical care colleagues, but maybe something mm -hmm. that some of our uh, general critical care colleagues might uh, need a little bit of reminder. So before we, 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 we go to the apnea like I said, I want to dive in a little bit more. So first, could you um, just uh, enumerate for us some of the prerequisites before we do this exam? So there are certain conditions, obviously, that we must make sure before we start doing this exam, because under certain conditions like heavy anesthetic or neuromuscular blockers, we might have what seems to be an exam consistent with brain death, but that could be problematic. So could you first tell us some of the prerequisites before we even yes. uh, attempt the exam? Yes, that, that's, uh, that, that's extremely important. So you have to uh, make sure that there are no confounders during your exam. And uh, the first thing that you make sure is that uh, the patient's blood pressure is, for example, adequate, that the uh, temperature uh, is normal, that the patient is not hypothermic. Uh, you document that there is no metabolic disarray. You make sure that uh, the sodium and the glucose are within normal limits, that there are no exposures to uh, sedatives or analgesics that could cloud uh, your neurological exam. Um, in, in this sense, you have also, you need to also make sure that if you have had a patient that has been exposed to a metabolic problem or sedatives or analgesics, that the renal function, for example, and the liver function, you know, are sort of close to normal, because otherwise you have to consider half-lives of medications before you end up uh, doing a, a brain dead exam. You have to be extremely careful. This is extremely important. Um, you know, before uh, you try to determine if somebody is uh, brain dead is that all these variables, um, you know, are checked. So, so we have a checklist. And if you go uh, to the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, they provide a checklist that you could use and apply uh, in your uh, protocols. Uh, I can give you the link to those um, papers um, and, and, it's, and, it, and it's very clear, you know, what happens when the patient has been exposed to pentobarbital? What is the level of pentobarbital, for example, uh, that is accepted uh, for a brain dead examination? Uh, so all of that is extremely important, uh, normal oxygenation, a normal CO2 level, and there are some prerequisites, for example, um, you know, in, in, in that case for COPD patients that have chronic uh, respiratory acidosis, for example. So, you know, it, it's just to make sure that your exam is not confounded by anything. And uh, and you mentioned uh, um, drug half-lives. Um, what would be the, mm -hmm. like a, a general guideline uh, in terms of time for how many half-lives would you wait in general with normal renal and hepatic function? It's usually five half-lives. Uh, the ones that you need to consider. So, um, right, and that's if your kidneys are normal. So if, if somebody has renal failure or liver failure, you have to even uh, you have to be even more more careful. You may need to wait even longer. Um, so uh, uh, you know it, it, 
the recommendation by the AN guideline is five half-lives. So at least five half-lives in general. And also you mentioned like, for example, with, with penobarbital, you can check actually levels. And I think there are levels that are recommended and will will we'll, we'll include the the document you referred to in the show in the show notes. Also for yeah. alcohol, you could measure alcohol levels as well. So these are things that I think just to make sure that there's no confounding effects. I mean, a common thing, maybe in some of our severe patients with ARDS is the use of neuromuscular blockers. So making sure that those are out of the system, you can do a train of four and you would expect a four out of four stimulation. So all these things, like you said, that are just a part of a checklist to make sure that our exam is not confounded by external factors that are reversible. Correct. I also wanted to dive in a little bit deeper, uh, Fred, in, in the exam itself, because I do think that there are some uh, maybe subtleties that are sometimes missed to the non-neurologist. So you did mention um, the evaluation of the pupils, I mean, uh, react reactivity to light, uh, how that, well that happens. Um, any comments on the oculocephalic reflex? Because I think that something that I have noticed is that very often uh, uh, clinicians who are not neurology trained will only do a horizontal, but they don't do a vertical yeah. oculocephalic test. Any comments on that? Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, sort of the classic uh, testing uh, of horizontal eye movements, right? Um, the um, structures that control the horizontal eye movements are primarily uh, located in the uh, pons, you know, so the PPRF, uh, the parapontine reticular um, formation, and then also the sixth nerve, for example, and then the connection system between that and the third nerve. So that it's primarily in the pons and in the, um, in, in, in the midbrain. But vertical eye movements are a little different. You know, uh, the, the third nerve controls and the fourth nerve controls some of those vertical movements, but in reality, um, the connections are certainly the circuitry, right? That has uh, the control of this stuff. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like distributing the brainstem uh, in a different way. So vertical eye movements, you know, I think about the tectum, the, the upper eye movements, and then the lower medulla, they have some connections that go down. So that's what it means, you know, is that you're testing really lower segments of the brainstem. Um, people forget about these uh, networks. They are subcortical. Uh, they are not easily testable. Um, and, uh, and that's why vertical eye movement is important. So basically you move the head if the patient doesn't have C-spine injury, if uh, uh, there's no evidence of trauma in the spinal cord or the, or the C-spine. Um, so you, you move the head uh, horizontally and then you do a head tilt maneuver and then you see if there are any uh, vertical eye movements because if the medulla in the lower portion is still alive, right, or or that still means that there's still some um, you know brain activity, and that's what you want to eliminate. And that also applies for the eleventh uh, nerve, which is the spinal nerve that has uh, some anatomical distribution that is extra foraminal, meaning it goes down into the spinal cord. You want to make sure that that level uh, it's not the twelfth, right? It's the eleventh, the one with the lowest level in the middle that that level is totally absent. So it would be different, right, if you press on on, on the head, you know, in the uh, supraorbital uh, area, for example, to produce a painful stimulation, and then the patient starts to move the, the shoulders or, or the neck in, 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 in an unusual way. That's different, right, if I elicit the same response from a nail crush, because I know, right, the nail crush may be just a spinal uh, core um, mediated um, reflex, whereas if I elicit the same thing about the foramen magnum, I know that there's still some connection between that fifth nerve and the 11 causing these abnormal movements. So this is why, you know, you do um, 
these lower segments of the medulla testing and vertical eye movements are one of them. Excellent. So I think that uh, just to recap some some valuable pearls for our for our audience, uh, making sure that you go through the prerequisites. I mean, use a checklist in terms of drugs, making sure that it's a uh, five half lives or more of any drug that can impact. Uh, the levels uh, of consciousness, uh, making sure that you examine above and below the foramen magnum in terms of mm-hmm. making sure that you are uh, eliminating any type of connection uh, uh, between, I mean, uh, uh, the brain and the rest of the body. And then finally, Correct. when you look at ocnocephalics, making sure that you're testing both for horizontal and vertical ocnocephalic reflexes, which sometimes can be deceiving in certain lesions. So those are all, I think, things that I'm sure a lot of our clinicians who are not doing this on a regular basis might, might, might forget once in a while. So I think very valuable to, to kind of recap. So once we have confirmed that we have a diagnosis of a devastating injury that's irreversible, we have eliminated any influence of external factors that are reversible. We've, we've gone through our checklist. We did a thorough exam, and uh, that is uh, uh, consistent with brain death. The next step, like you said, um, would be to go for the apnea test. So tell us a little bit more about the apnea testing. So the apnea test in my mind is just a confirmation that there's really no um, brainstem or the encephalic activity uh, that, um, that would elicit a, uh, a respiration right during a challenge of CO2. So CO2 is a very powerful um, stimulant of the deencephalon. And that's why, <laughs> you know, you, um, you breathe even though you don't think you're breathing. Uh, and, um, you know, if you elevate the CO2 to, uh, to a level that is usually uh, considered more than 20 millimeters of mercury, um, which is not based on any empiric data, by the way, this is just expert opinion. But if you elevate the level substantially and more than 20 millimeters of mercury, uh, you don't see any responses. Um, then you know you are satisfied with the assumption that there is no, uh, you know, brain activity. So uh, that's what confirms, right, this concept of cessation, whole cessation of brain function, the amnia test. And with the guideline and per the law, that's what satisfies the diagnosis of brain death. As long as you have gone through all of these prerequisites, very thorough neuro exam. Right, and then finally uh, the amnia test. For the amnia test, you have to have also some uh, considerations. Uh, your patient has to be uh, normothermic, so you cannot do an amnia test in somebody that is hypothermic, that is resurfacing from uh, hypothermia from cardiac arrest, for example. You or, have to have a system. Or environmental, what? right? Or environmental uh, um, hypothermia. Or environmental, yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to rewarm the patient. Uh, the systolic blood pressure, believe it or not, according to the guideline, has to be more than 100 millimeters of mercury. Um, right, and again, there is no data to to support that, but it, it's biologically uh, accepted that you know at that level you can still maintain perfusion, uh, you know, to structures in the brain. So that's one of the prerequisites. And then um, you know the, the other prerequisite is that you have to have very good pre-oxygenation. So before we do an amnia test, um, we usually pre-oxygenate our patients. Um, you know, we put on an FiO2 of 100% for a couple of minutes. And then having a baseline ABG that tells you that, um, that the patient oxygenation, usually more than 200 millimeters of mercury is what's recommended, you know, to perform an amnia test. Because that's what's going to give you an idea if the patient is going to tolerate it or not, you know. It wouldn't 
you know, makes sense to get one of your ARDS patients that has a PAO2 to ratio of less than 100, right? And, and it, 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 the, the patient wouldn't tolerate that. I mean, you will have to stop the test uh, almost immediately because the um, reserve uh, would be too low. So, so that's one of the reasons why that number is, out, is, is there. And then finally, you have to have a, a normal uh, pH status, a normal acid-base status, you know. A couple of things, I mean, Fred, to kind of uh, um, talk a little bit more about uh, um, the items you mentioned for the apnea testing. So clearly, I mean, uh, there are patients that we won't be able to do an apnea test, right? So there are patients yep. who you said who are too hypoxemic to tolerate a PIPA-5 or be off the ventilator, like severe RDS, who would not be candidates for, for an apnea test. There are patients who become hemodynamically unstable, those will not be a candidate for an apnea test. So I think that's important to, to recognize that an apnea test would be the logical next step in this determination, but sometimes it's not possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about what to do in those cases soon. But let me ask you another question, Fred. What, what constitutes, um, so, so you said a positive apnea test is when the patient fulfills all these criteria, we are able to disconnect them from the ventilator, we observe no breathing, in a period of eight to 10 minutes, and when we get a gas, either the PCO2 was over 60 or went by 20 or more above the baseline. And if in those cases, we would call the apnea test positive, correct? That's correct. That's uh, what and the I, guidelines suggest. And I think that a very important uh, situation is that if we were to do this with a patient, by definition, at this point, that time would dictate the time of death for this patient. So when we filled the, the death certificate, it would be the time that we completed or, or, or proved that the apnea test was positive, which I think is something that sometimes people don't, don't understand, especially with patients who then become organ donors or, or other things go on later. But let's talk a little bit, Fred, about an aborted apnea test. So when do you stop the apnea test? So when um, I see uh, respirations, <laughs> when, when I see the patient is taking a deep breath, we have recently one here in my institution where uh, minute number five, he took a small breath. So we, we stopped the amnesty. So that's one. Uh, if you see um, something that, um, uh, that resembles arousal, you know, you, suddenly the patient opens the eye, you know, something uh, like that, uh, you have to be extremely careful and perhaps seasoned uh, not to stop an apnea test when a patient starts having weird uh, motor uh, um, responses. And, um, and what I'm saying is that there are some spinal cord mediated phenomena that you could see uh, in these patients and it's not related to uh, the patient is, is waking up or not, it's related to the acid-based status that you are causing. You are basically causing an acidosis, a very quick Elevation in CO2 will translate in a very quick um, um, lowering of your pH. And that acidosis, sometimes, not every patient, I've seen probably one in 12 years of practice, um, they may elicit weird muscular uh, abnormalities. And you see that uh, sometimes, you know, these myoclonic movements in patients with, with uh, metabolic acidosis. So, um, so sometimes you could see these weird movements and you really have to be very seasoned, you know, to sort of like, uh, discern if this is a uh, res muscular response mediated to uh, to acidosis or not. Um, you know, my take on apnea tests, right, is that, I'm sorry, on, on the whole brain death uh, pathway, right, 
uh, is that you really have to be sure. And if you are not sure, it's better to say, I'm aborting this test. If you see something abnormal you're not comfortable with, right, uh, it's just to better say, you know, I cannot really pronounce this patient because he, you know, uh, uh, you know had a, a, an extensor response. And you cannot really say that it was just spinal cord mediated. It's just better to say, you know, I'm going to stop this. And I'm going to continue. I cannot pronounce it. And then um, pick a, uh, an ancillary testing. Yeah, I think when in so, doubt, obviously you stop. And I think yeah. that it's also another reason why a lot of authors have um, recommended that when we do these apnea tests, we do not leave the patients hooked up to the ventilator because any movement could trigger a breath and fool you. So usually just having oxygen with TPs or just directly into the ET tube is, is a recommended um, a strategy. And for the person that is going to pronounce the patient to be present at the bedside, making the observations and the determination, I think, is very important. Exactly. Yeah, no, uh, we usually insert a, uh, a cannula through the ET tube. And uh, we put 100% um, uh, 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 oxygen through, through it. And patients uh, that don't have any uh, pulmonary abnormalities, they will tolerate that. But, yeah, you have to disconnect it from the ventilator for sure. And, and I think that one of the things that the, the, the literature have shown, Fred, and what we discussed earlier is that the basic concept of brain death, the basic tenets of what is required to make that diagnosis are not that controversial. What, where there's variability, I think, among the medical community is in the details of how certain things are done or not done, because like you said, we don't have a lot of randomized or prospective studies that have compared these uh, these ways of doing things one to another, and there is significant variability. And that's why I think it's important for clinicians not only to know the American Academy of Neurology recommendations, but to understand very thoroughly what is the guidelines or policies at their institution, and also how those work with their local state laws, since there's some variations that we might get to later from state to state. Let me ask you another question regarding the apnea testing, which I think is is something that a lot of people sometimes struggle with because it, the concept is easy, but then when you try to implement it, it becomes a little bit more, more prob- problematic. What about consent, Fred? Do you need to get consent to do an apnea test? Uh, yeah, so that question polarizes a lot of the providers. If you ask the question, do you need consent for amnia tests? Um, you know, it would polarize a group of, of intensivist providers or people that, that do this uh, frequently. And the reason for the consent uh, question is, is because you're going to basically perform a procedure that could actually have some complications during the procedure, right? So if you think about uh, the uh, the consent process that we use, uh, in our patients that are alive, and by the way, you know, the patient is still alive when we're going to do an amniotic test, then requesting permission to do something that could potentially harm the patient, right? The pressure can drop or, you know, something could happen to the patient, you know, he can code during the amniotic test, uh, you know, it, 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 it's very important. So you don't need written consent, in my opinion. What you need to do is inform the family that you're going to do this condition, uh, I'm sorry, this, uh, this procedure, this testing, to document uh, that there is no um, uh, brain function as your last step to arrive to the conclusion of death under neurological criteria. And perhaps the most important thing that you need to disclose, right, is not just that there could be complications, but that you're gonna be there with a group of people that could actually 
um, um, you know, take care of the complications, is that the outcome could be that the patient is going to be dead. That's for me the most important part of the disclosure of, 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 of the whole process is that once I do this and I document that there is an elevation of more than 20 and the, and the, and the uh, uh, CO2 increased substantially and there was no response, is that the patient is going to be declared dead because the community doesn't understand this concept very well. And if, you know, I mean, if I tell you, right, sometimes when I have these discussions with families, they are like, okay, that's great. So what is next? And then you're like, well, your family member is going to be pronounced dead. What is next is that he's going to get disconnected from the ventilator and he's going to go to the morgue, right? They don't, they don't understand that. And this is why it's so important for you to tell them that the outcome is that they're going to get a, um, a, a documentation that they are dead and therefore everything stops, not just the medical care. Many things will stop once you document the patient is dead. I agree. And I think that a lot of the, the specifics for the, for the process, if you look at the uh, uh, guidelines that will put at the show notes, the check boxes are there. We all can go through that and make sure you cover all those things. But part of the difficulty, I think, that arises with these cases, and there's been some very, very uh, publicized cases where families refuse to accept this diagnosis, might be mitigated by how we approach families. And I think that uh, I agree with you, Fred, 100%. Families should be aware of what's going on. What I usually try to do is to explain to them that there are two ways that we pronounce patients dead. One is when their heart and their and their lungs stop working, uh, which I think most people understand very easily. But I also tell them that the other way is when the brain doesn't work, it also is considered a death. But in the case of this patient in the ICU, the heart and the brain, the heart and the lung continue because of the machines. So when we suspect that, we might be able to tell the families. Your loved one has devastating neurological injury from this process. We suspect that this patient, uh, your loved one might be dead by what we called neurologic criteria or be brain dead. We're going to test for that. And I think it's a good way, to, a good lead way into saying we're going to do an apnea test and explain what it is. And it starts, I mean, preparing the family. And I think that the key here is to use as simple the language as possible and be very clear in terms of what we're doing and what is happening, like you said, Fred, I think can decrease the role of confusion because these are obviously, especially when they're younger people or unexpected uh, problems, dramatic cases, tensions are very high, the emotions are very high, and I think it can become very confusing for a lot of families. Yeah. So let's say that we are unable to, so, so actually, if we are able to confirm that the admetist is positive, like we said, at that point, based on the current laws that we have, right, and in most uh, states, you would document that the patient meets criteria for death by neurologic criteria or for brain death. Um, if you can't do the apnea test, what are other options to try to get to this diagnosis? Yeah, so the, 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 the concept of brain death is... Uh, cessation of whole brain function, right? And and what you need to understand that this is on the basis of total collapse of cerebral blood flow. So when you think about brain death as a condition, right, that translates into total cessation of blood flow, then it gives you an idea of what you can do to determine, right, if the patient is dead. So blood flow testing is, in my mind, one of the ancillary testings uh, of tests that um, that I would always uh, try to get or or, or consider. Um, there are some um, 
studies that with electrophysiological testing like EEG, and you know they were part of the original sort of like definition of the syndrome. Um, but in my mind, that is really not um, um, recommended nowadays, even though it's still part of the guideline. You know that you could still use EEG, and some jurisdictions uh, use electrophysiology. Uh, they continue EEG as SCPs as part of their uh, ancillary, ancillary testing battery. In my mind, right, knowing that uh, brain death and total cessation of brain function on the basis of zero blood flow collapse, um, then I am I'm always trying to get a blood uh, flow uh, test. And the main ones that we have available nowadays are uh, the uh, nuclear scans uh, with technetium. Um, some um, uh, research, um, more empiric data suggests that, for example, transcranial Dopplers are also very good. And, 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 and the beauty of TCDs is that it's portable. So the problem that we have in the ICU sometimes is that the patient is too sick to do an amnia test, so we cannot do it. And then it's too sick to be transported uh, to a different setting than the ICU for this uh, blood flow testing. Cerebral angiogram is another one that you could consider, but again, the patient has to be uh, transferred. Uh, there is some data, on, um, you know, uh, some, some, some reports uh, for example, using CTA, uh, computed tomography with angiography, and even MRIs. I don't think the sensitivity is that great uh, that I would actually recommend uh, CTA or, or MRAs. I think that uh, technetium and, and TCDs have the highest sensitivity. And, and as I said, it's the portability of TCDs that in my institution and in my practice, I always default to. Yeah. Uh, when I cannot do an ancillary test. And I think and that, for these, yeah. go ahead. What I was going to say, Fred, is that, that a lot of our listeners obviously practice in large community hospitals. And uh, I think that expertise with TCD might be more limited to centers that do it a lot. So obviously in the right hands, like you said, it has tremendous advantages, especially that it can go to the patient. But I do suspect that in most hospitals in the United States, probably an angiogram, a nuclear scan, or an EEG is what's most readily available. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, you're right. And and the problem with TC is also the inter-observer um, variability. So uh, there are patterns in the TCDs that you need to uh, consider. Uh, not uh, showing blood flow is not enough. You have to have a pattern and it's called uh, reverberation of, of flow. That means that the flow is coming back out of the arteries uh, that go and it has to be in the four vessels. So yes, so uh, you know TCDs, even though they offer uh, an advantage uh, logistically, um, they are not that prevalent uh, because of what you're saying. Uh, angiograms, um, in my mind, perhaps the gold standard, but in my institution, we cannot get angiograms from brain death patients, uh, for example. And I think that uh, one of the things that I noticed is that you used the term ancillary test um, mm -hmm. for much of the the literature in the past, uh, or you, when you speak with people in, in, in practice, you might hear people talk about a confirmatory test. Uh, give me the distinction there, and which is the, the preferred term these days? I think, I, you know what, I, I, I don't know, Sergio. I think uh, uh, the terms are used interchangeably, and, and ancillary testing, uh, I think it's uh, what the guideline sort of like defines this test as. Um, uh, a confirmatory, a, confir a confirmatory test, you know, in my mind is the amnio test, you know, yeah, exactly. that's what confirms at the bedside, you know, that there is no, um, you know, the encephalic function. So, 
And I guess the the, the point I was I, I was getting to is that uh, none of these are gold standards. These ancillary tests, and the gold standard really is, as you mentioned, the examination of the patient and the apnea test, right? And these can help you yes. get more 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 point, more data points. But ultimately, like you said, I mean, the reason why I think the the guidelines are using or pushing the concept ancillary is because none of these are a gold standard by themselves, and that you need to do the other steps. And it's only when you cannot do the apnea test and you want more information to be sure, or in some, I guess, hospital protocols, they might include these. But uh, again, I mean, like you said, I mean, these are ancillary tests that give you a little more data. Uh, is there ever a role to do more than one test, more than one ancillary test, or you just go with one and the one that you think is most appropriate for your patient and based on your institution's expertise? Yeah, I would just, um, you know, use the one that you have available where you have more experience with. Um, I don't think there, that, that you should be doing um, many ancillary tests at the same time. You will get uh, confused uh, with the results. You may get uh, uh, false negatives, false positives. I mean, you, you know, you, you may be confused. As you are saying, in reality, the gold standard is the clinical exam and the, um, uh, the amnia test. And then, by the way, the American Academy of Neurology you know, it's, it's sort of like the position is that you should try to do everything possible to document this um, exam um, or, or to arrive to the conclusion of death by neurological criteria with just a clinical exam and the apnea test. Yeah. And I think, now, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there are some jurisdictions, perhaps um, more in, uh, in Europe or in, in Latin America, where they require you by law to have the clinical exam, the apnea test, and an ancillary testing. And perhaps you may be working in an institution that requires both. I don't know. Because the law basically says it's up to the provider, right? That means perhaps up to a committee in the institution to define what is your uh, battery of testing that you want to do for a patient to arrive to that conclusion. So in a hospital, you know, in, even in the United States or in the state, you know, you may be required by law, right? Um, though I'm not aware uh, that you may require both the clinical, the apnea, and also the ancillary testing. And I think that we, we mentioned earlier, but I think it's worth repeating for our audience. There really are um, a couple of levels in terms of, of what to do. So the, the law, the federal law in the United States, um, allows people to be declared dead based on their logic condition, and the law establishes that uh, the criteria for those conditions are based on the medical standard. Uh, there are some specific variations in some state laws that allow for some provisions or some exemptions, but basically it's still very similar. And then you have really uh, two more levels of medical knowledge. One is what the guidelines say, and like Fred said, the American uh, Academy of Neurology is really the, the predominant guideline that people have, have endorsed. And they very clearly tell you that it's the examination, the right, so the right setting, the examination, and the apnea test, that it's all that's needed. If those are conclusive, you can declare somebody brain dead. The ancillary testing is only recommended uh, when you cannot perform a apnea test or it's aborted or the exam is inconclusive because you cannot perform an exam. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then finally, I think it's very important for our providers to be familiar with what are the policies and guidelines for their institution and what are the what does the law say at their state 
So having practiced in New Jersey, it is very well known that New Jersey has a very clear exemption based on religious uh, um, beliefs that allows families to present that and the patient cannot be declared dead by neurologic criteria. But that's a very specific situation to New Jersey. So I think that I would encourage our, pro, our, our listeners to really understand what are the local laws, but also what are the local policies at their institution? Who can do the test? How do they do the test? What is required? So that they make sure that they comply with all those, those requirements. Before we move on uh, to some special circumstances, uh, Fred, I wanted to ask you about uh, situations that might mimic uh, brain death that uh, actually we have to be careful with. I'm sure they're very rare, but uh, any situations in particular that come to mind? Uh, yeah, so uh, the the ones that we mentioned at the beginning where we want to really be careful, um, you know, and for which we have a checklist, right? Any metabolic condition, uh, you know, that uh, that would cause um, transient uh, cessation of brain activity. So uh, intoxication with drugs, you know, sort of like the main one that I'm thinking, um, exposure to uh, analgesics and sedatives, right? Um, we uh, use a lot of, uh, believe it or not, a lot of, uh, uh, pentobarbital for management of ICP in our neurological patients. So, uh, uh, you know, once you give pentobarb uh, sufficient doses, you will basically, um, you know, um, mimic, you know, a brain death uh, exam. Your patient will have no neurological activity whatsoever, and they will have isoelectrical, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, electronegative silence is what I'm, what I'm saying, in the EEG. Um, so um, all of those, you know, are in my mind. And then Things, you know, like uh, the locked-in syndrome, right, which is the one that I always, uh, you know, uh, get concerned about, um, uh, where you will have a patient that looks comatose but is in, re in reality aware. So knowing how to test and examine these patients is extremely important. You know, when I'm examining a comatose patient, I usually uh, open their eyes, you know, uh, with, with my hands, and I try to communicate and see if there's any response. Vertical eye movements is the one that I'm looking for. Uh, but again, you know, these patients usually have very localized injuries in the brainstem. So uh, you will see them in the imaging, you know, that there's really no major uh, supratentorial brain injury that could explain the exam. So you have to be a little more concerned. Um, but those are primarily the ones, you know, intoxications and, and the locked-in syndrome. Excellent. So I think that as we as we start wrapping up, I guess the last topic that I wanted to touch about in brain death is the special circumstances that are becoming more prevalent as we evolve in the way we provide a critical care. So the two specific that I wanted to ask you, if you can just give us some very targeted comments on patients who are post-cardiac arrest who get targeted temperature management for anoxic brain injury and patients who are on ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Yeah, so for the first uh, cohort, the uh, patient post-TTM after cardiac arrest, um, you know, you have to be uh, uh, more careful uh, because uh, hypothermia has uh, changed, uh, you know, um, the way that these patients look like. And uh, the prognosis also has changed a lot with exposure to hypothermia post cardiac arrest. Now, um, in my practice, right, um, we sort of like know it once uh, we see it. Uh, we have a patient with cardiac arrest with a prolonged um, time to, um, to ROSC, um, you know, with uh, uh, an imaging that shows already some 
uh, serial edema, which may be substantial, a lot of effacement in the sulci and the gray white matter um, areas. Um, and, and then once they start resurfacing from, from the hypothermia into normal temperatures, um, you know, uh, then when you're examining them serially, you sort of like start thinking, you know, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, this is going in the right direction. This patient is perhaps uh, dead. So um, I usually wait the whole first 24 hours of hypothermia. My patient has been hypothermic down to 33. If you are at 36, it's a little different. You can actually move faster. But I usually wait um, a couple of hours after I get the patient back to a normal thermic range. I exclude with the checklist, right, any possibility of, of exposure to sedatives or organ dysfunctions that could uh, preclude the exam uh, of brain death. And, um, and then after I go to the checklist, I examine the patient uh, uh, in a thorough way. And, uh, but, but again, you know, it's, it's sort of like this feeling that you have that you know the patient is not going to uh, turn out well. Um, you know, I think it's something, you know, with, with the experience. But I wouldn't try to do an exam, you know, um, up front. You know, most of the patients that have cardiac arrest that come to the emergency department, they look brain dead. You know, they have, um, you know, uh, no brain activity whatsoever. So uh, unless I know, you know, the patient has been down for a while, you know, and it's, uh, uh, they're, they're just trying to resuscitate, you know, somebody that, that, that looks dead, you know, from, from the beginning, I probably will not attempt a brain dead exam. Up front, I will let him go through the whole process and then do my neuroprognostication, you know, after they're rewarmed. For the ECMO patient, it's a little bit more uh, uh, difficult because they have total artificial uh, circulation. Uh, and um, there has been some attempts at uh, sort of like mimicking uh, the amnia test with uh, uh, CO2 challenges by infusing CO2 uh, in these patients. Um, but in reality, I think that. Um, the blood flow studies are probably uh, the the way of going around um, the normal pathway in these patients. It, you know, you, you cannot examine these patients on uh, uh, on ECMO because you are not going to have an opportunity of performing a conventional amnia testing. So, can you infuse CO two uh, um, via the ECMO machine and sort of like mimic or simulate? The challenge and the answer is there. A couple of reports. I think uh, the one that I can think about is uh, from the Mayo Clinic that tried to do this and sort of like, but not every institution uh, has that experience or availability. Uh, what we have done at my institution is TCDs. So uh, transcranial Dopplers, um, you know, can help uh, because they are portable. You don't need to get these patients with all this machinery down to the uh, angio suite or the uh, nuclear. Um, uh, sweet, and uh, uh, and you can do a, uh, uh, a quick assessment of, uh, of blood flow with those patients. And as I said, you have to look for the pattern, which is reverberation in the four vessels. So it's interesting, like you said. I mean, with the with the, the post cardiac arrest patients who underwent targeted temperature management, obviously it's a, it's about making sure that the timing of the assessment is appropriate. We had a whole discussion on neuroprognostication in this a population with you a year ago. So I'll make sure that I link that episode to the podcast uh, show notes if people are interested. 
And with ECMO, I think the challenge, obviously, is the apnea test. There are some reports, like you mentioned, Fred, where people have used the the, the ECMO machinery in the sweep to, to titrate or simulate the apnea test and see if that stimulates mm-hmm. breathing. But it seems that this is a case where an ancillary testing up front would probably be would, would make much more sense in terms of trying to get that determination. Correct. Excellent. Well, I think that it's been a, a very interesting discussion. Uh, as I said uh, before we started recording, I didn't want to dive into all the, the, the cases and controversies that have, have, have uh, arisen over the last several years. People can look those up. Uh, I, I'm sure that a lot of people have experienced families that refuse to accept the diagnosis and the legal battles in that respect have been well publicized in the press. But I do think that uh, it's important to just review what we know about the clinical uh, performance of uh, this determination, what's the science available, and make sure that we provide our listeners with some good tools that we'll uh, we'll share in the the podcast uh, notes so they can educate themselves. This is something I think that happens in every ICU every year, uh, at least a couple of times, and in very large centers can happen multiple times in in a single year. Uh, One of the things that, that I also wanted to, uh, to do it be- before we, we end is uh, uh, make sure uh, you had shared in one of the chapters that you wrote, Fred, with me, that there is a website uh, from the Society of Neurocritical Care that really has a toolkit yeah. and a lot of education material that I think is very valuable. So I'll make sure that I uh, put that in the show notes as well so our audience can go and, ch- and check that out. You've been through this? Yeah. You've been through this before. You know the drill, Fred. At the end, we kind yes. of tap into your into your wisdom. So a couple of closing questions. The last time you were on the podcast, I asked you about books that were very influential, and you had mentioned Meditations by Marcos Aurelius, mm-hmm. which happens to be also one of my most important books in terms of one that I try to read every year at least once. So I'm going to have to change the question today. If you were on a desert island and could only listen to one music album, which one would it be? So I hope in the island they have a USB connection so I can <laughs> connect my It'll my have to be vinyl. It'll have to be vinyl. Okay, vinyl. Old, old school. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. So there is there is one uh, album that 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 I love and is uh, Nevermind by Nirvana, uh, 1991. And the reason why I, I love it so much is because that's the year when I got into medical school, and uh, the 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 year where where I had my first girlfriend. Believe it or not. I never had a girlfriend. I got my first girlfriend in medical school, and uh, and the best song is "Come As You Are." So <laughs> we will include that in the show notes. I think that a lot of our, our audience might be uh, too young to to remember Pain and, and, and Nirvana, but definitely I, mean, I think uh, a phenomenal album. And I do have the yeah. vinyl, so I definitely will. Oh, you do? Uh, oh my it's, gosh! It's, it's an lucky. Awesome, it's an awesome album. I agree. So yeah. my second question relates to failure. We seem to always be fearful of failure, but I believe that failure should be embraced since it often is the best teacher that we have in life. Could you share with us a really good failure, one that really taught you something valuable? Um, you know, talking about death and life situations, right? Um, you know, um, you know, one of my fears, right, in in the intensive care unit, uh, and we have talked about this uh, before. It's the failure of, of, of being a compassion. And we have talked about this because of our uh, experiences with, with mentors uh, 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 before. Um, you know, I, I fear, you know, failing uh, in terms of 
uh, being compassionate at the end of life. And uh, it, it sounds like the struggles that I have and, you know, it, if you're a physician and in, in the ICU, um, you know, it's, it's not bad, you know, to go home and then cry a little bit about, you know, not being able to help somebody because you have failed miserably at being compassionate with that uh, patient or family. So, um, you know, over the last five years, I've been sort of like changing the way that I approach uh, these topics in, in the ICU with families and, uh, um, you know, sort of like discussing them at the same level with families is what, uh, what I try to do and failing to do that is what uh, I'm afraid the most. So I think that this is definitely something that it touches all of us who listen to Critical Matters and work in the ICU is uh, recognizing that no matter how compassionate we believe we are, we probably have failed some patients and recognizing that and learning from those experiences, I think is instrumental in becoming better physicians and better providers for, for our patients. So definitely. the last question is, is there anything in particular specific that you would want every listener uh, to our podcast to know could be a quarter specific fact of what we talked about? No, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think I uh, will um, go back to uh, their first uh, postca- uh, podcast. I think that uh, you know, knowing death uh, is an alternative as well, and it could be a good outcome, uh, knowing that it's uh, extremely important in the field that, that we practice. So um, that doesn't have to be the worst outcome. It could also be a good outcome. And, and trying to you know, understand you know, the suffering from the patient and the family to um, better explain that uh, when you think that everything is just like uh, not not going well, it's an extremely important uh, uh, thing that I would like everyone to know. Excellent. Fred, as usual, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and your knowledge. And uh, we definitely, I mean, uh, look forward to having you back on, on Critical Matters as one of our recurrent guests. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.